0: As I've mentioned a few times now, the basic structure of Zechariah is fairly straightforward. There are three distinct blocks of material. First of all, there is a series of night visions running from chapter 1, verse 7 through to chapter 6, verse 15. Then secondly, there's a series of oracles concerning the essence of right religion in chapter 7, 1 through 8, 23. And then lastly, there is a section of eschatological writings beginning in chapter 9, verse 1, and carrying on through to the end of chapter 14. I mentioned in the episode covering chapter 9 that I find the divisions suggested by Brian Gregory for this last section to be very helpful. He sees four distinct oracles or depictions. The first one he titles, The Coming King, that's chapter 9, 1 through 11, 3. The second one he titles The Rejected Shepherd, running from 11.4 to 11.17. The third one he titles The Pierced One, running from 12.1 through 13.9. And then the fourth and last one he gives the title The Final Renewal, running from 14.1 through to 14.21. According to that arrangement, the first three verses of chapter 11 are actually the conclusion of the first oracle, the one dealing with the coming king. We talked about that. That may be the case, or it may be intended as a sort of hinge. Either way, as we get into verse 4, we'll be entering into the second of the oracles, the one dealing with the rejected shepherd. Hear now the word of the Lord, beginning at verse 1. Open your doors, O Lebanon, that the fire may devour your cedars. Wail, O Cyprus, for the cedar has fallen, for the glorious trees are ruined. Wail, oaks of Bashan, for the thick forest has been felled. The sound of the wail of the shepherds for their glory is ruined. The sound of the roar of the lions for the thicket of the Jordan is ruined. Now, as I mentioned in the previous episode, I think this little poem actually works as a hinge. It just moves from one bit of imagery to the next. It starts with the imagery of trees for the bad leaders. Then it moves to the imagery of shepherds, which makes sense given what it is transitioning into. Uh, Either way, in verse 4, However you want to understand those first three verses, uh, in verse four, we get into the second oracle, which Gregory gives the title, The Rejected Shepherd. This passage is made up of two sign actions or prophetic dramas, which Zechariah is directed to perform. The two pictures contrast the good and the worthless shepherds. The first sign act is described in verses four to six and then is performed in verses seven to 14. And then the second one is described in verses 15 to 16, but no actual performance is narrated. The section ends with a prophetic pronouncement against the worthless shepherd. Kenneth Barker provides a useful and succinct summary of the section saying, the purpose of this section then is to dramatize in typological fashion, the rejection of the coming messianic shepherd king and the resulting rejection of Israel ending in her judgment quote. I think that's exactly right. Let's hear about that now, starting in verse four. Thus says the Lord, my God, become shepherd of the flock doomed to slaughter. Those who buy them slaughter them and go unpunished. And those who sell them say, blessed be the Lord. I have become rich and their own shepherds have no pity on them. For I will no longer have pity on the inhabitants of this land, declares the Lord. Behold, I will cause each of them to fall into the hand of his neighbor and each into the hand of his king and they shall crush the land and I will deliver none from their hand. So in these verses, God directs Zechariah to engage in some prophetic theater. And of course, this is somewhat common in the Old Testament. We think of Jeremiah, for example, being commanded to buy a new pair of linen undergarments and then to bury them in the banks of the Euphrates River only to retrieve them much later after they were ruined and soggy and gross, and then to wear them around in public as a very powerful way of communicating that God was intending to bury and ruin Israel by means of the exile in Babylon. That was a pretty graphic way of communicating. When all the other prophets in Jeremiah's day were saying, peace, peace, and the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, Jeremiah was walking around in a pair of ruined underwear saying, God is going to rot the sin and idolatry right out of your bones. That's prophetic drama. That's a sign act that is designed to get everyone's attention and to communicate something important. Well, that's what's going on here. Zechariah is told to dress himself up and to equip himself so as to play the role of the good shepherd. But the play itself is a tragedy. He does everything right as a shepherd, but the sellers are greedy and the buyers are vicious. And as a result, the flock of the Lord is despoiled. They are scattered and divided, victimized and destroyed. That's the play as God himself has authored it. In verses seven to nine, the prophet tells us about his performance. He says, so I became the shepherd of the flock, doomed to be slaughtered, by the sheep traders, and I took two staffs. One I named Favor, the other I named Union, and I tended the sheep. In one month I destroyed the three shepherds, but I became impatient with them, and they also detested me. So I said, I will not be your shepherd. What is to die, let it die. What is to be destroyed, let it be destroyed. And let those who are left devour the flesh of one another. Closed quote. All right, what's going on here? Let's start with the two staves, named favor and union. The idea here seems to be that the gracious rule of the good shepherd is intended to lead toward peace and harmony. Certainly, when we look forward into the New Testament, we see Jesus, right? Spoiler alert, who is the good shepherd, praying to the Father for this very thing. In John 17, 20 to 21, he says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me." Quote. So the good shepherd intends to bring unity. He comes to create community with God and community among his followers. But as we will see in a few minutes, that doesn't come about, at least initially, for the people of Israel, because they reject him as their leader. In verse 8, he talks about destroying the three shepherds. What exactly does that mean? Well, in general, the sign act here is simply saying that in order for the good shepherd to take charge of the flock, he has to displace the existing leaders. We talked about that in the last episode. Salvation involves getting rid of the bad leaders and providing a new leader, a good leader. So there's a bit of overlap between this picture and the last. Now, scholars will debate the identity of these three leaders, and there are numerous suggestions available to you if you want to survey the literature. Some have suggested Eleazar, John, and Simon, the three rebel leaders that represented the various warring factions inside Jerusalem leading up to the siege and destruction by Titus in A.D. 70. That could be, though I consider that the least likely of all the options. Some have suggested Jason, Menelaus, and Alchemist, the three high priests from the second century BC. Many have suggested that we are to see this in a symbolic sense, as in, he replaces the traditional leadership of the covenant community, prophet, priest, and king. And I tend to think that's the most sensible of all the options. He wipes away the old, and he steps into the void as the all-sufficient one. That makes a great deal of sense to me. But as I said, the point continues to be debated. The phrase in one month almost certainly means in a figurative sense, in a relatively short period of time. Jesus' earthly ministry lasted only three years, a relatively short period of time. But in that relatively short period of time, he turned the world upside down and he completely reconstituted the covenant community around himself. However, in the second half of verse eight, the drama begins to take a negative turn. The people detest the good shepherd, and the good shepherd grows tired of them. Obviously, this foretells the rejection of Jesus by the leaders and by the nation of Israel as a whole. So the good shepherd says, I will not be your shepherd. What is to die? Let it die. What is to be destroyed? Let it be destroyed. And let those who are left devour the flesh of one another. It's difficult not to think of the siege and destruction of Jerusalem by Titus in AD 69-70 when you hear those words. The good shepherd seems to be saying, if you want to resist and reject my leadership, fine. What is to die, let it die. What must be destroyed, let it be destroyed. He's saying, if we need to see what your life will be like apart from my leadership, then let's do that. And certainly the story of Israel after the rejection of their rightful king is a sad And tragic tale. The historian Simon Montefiore speaks about the rapid descent of Israel in the 40 years after the death of Jesus this way. He says, by the time Vespasian emerged as emperor and dispatched Titus to take Jerusalem, AD 69, the city was divided between three warlords at war with each other. The Jewish warlords had first fought pitched battles in the temple courts, which ran with blood and then plundered the city. Their fighters worked their way through the richer neighborhoods, ransacking the houses, killing the men, and abusing the women. It was sport to them. Crazed by their power and the thrill of the hunt, probably intoxicated with looted wine, they indulged themselves in feminine wantonness, decked their hair and put on women's garments, and besmeared themselves with ointments and had paints under their eyes. These provincial cutthroats, swaggering in finely dyed cloaks, killed everyone in their path. In their ingenious depravity, they invented unlawful pleasures. Jerusalem, given over to intolerable uncleanness, became a brothel and torture chamber, and yet remained a shrine. Quote. Hear that. All of that happened before the Romans arrived to lay siege to the city. This is who they became on their own. A cross-dressing, murderous, rapacious mob, inventing unlawful pleasures, given over to uncleanness. The whole city a brothel, a torture chamber, and an idolatrous shrine. That was Jerusalem. Forty years after they rejected their rightful king. Now, that's, that's not my opinion. That's not rhetorical device. That's the historical record. That's what happened, which is, of course, exactly what Zechariah prophesied. The good shepherd would give them over to their own corrupt desires. What is to die, let it die. What is to be destroyed, let it be destroyed. And let those who are left devour the flesh of one another. The Jewish historian Josephus, described Jerusalem near the end of the Roman siege as like a wild beast grown mad, which for want of food from abroad fell upon eating its own flesh, quote. Cannibalism was a fairly common phenomenon during the final stages of a brutal siege, and stories of it abound with respect to the siege of Jerusalem. The dramatic sign act continues in verses 10 to 13. Zechariah says, And I took my staff favor, and I broke it, annulling the covenant that I had made with all the peoples. So it was annulled on that day, and the sheep traders who were watching me knew that it was the word of the Lord. Then I said to them, If it seems good to you, give me my wages, but if not, keep them. And they weighed out as my wages thirty pieces of silver. Then the Lord said to me, Throw it to the potter, the lordly price at which I was priced by them. So I took the thirty pieces of silver and threw them into the house of the Lord to the potter. Verse 10 is very interesting and is the occasion of a certain amount of scholarly debate. Some understand the annulling of the covenant to refer to the breaking of the old covenant to be replaced by the new. But the wording specifically says that the covenant that was broken was with all the peoples, that is, with the nations. Therefore, the majority of scholars, at least the majority of those that I read and consulted, understand this to refer to a general covenant with the nations regarding their relationship to Israel. Certainly, we see God holding nations accountable in the Old Testament for their conduct toward Israel. We think, for example, the book of Amos. We think of several of the night visions in Zechariah. So in this interpretation, what the good shepherd is saying here when he breaks the staff named favor is that he will no longer protect Israel from the invasions and deprivations of their neighbors. He removes his protective commitment to them as a nation and the sheep traders understood it. They understood that it was now open season on the people of Israel. In verse 12, having been rejected by the nation, the shepherd asks for his wages, his severance package, if you will, and he has paid the wages of a slave, thirty pieces of silver. Zechariah is directed by the Lord to throw this payment to the potter as a dramatic way of indicating offense at the disrespect shown to him by the leaders. So Zechariah does that very thing. He takes the silver and he throws it into the house of the Lord to the potter. We are likely to think of some sort of official potter's guild associated with the sacred items of the temple. Throw it to the gardener, we might say in modern parlance. Well, of course, you don't have to have been to seminary to make sense of this part of the oracle. All you have to have done is read the New Testament. Thomas McComiskey says here, when we look for a shepherd leader, whom the nation's leaders rejected for 30 pieces of silver at a time when the nation fell into foreign hands, the New Testament stands insistently before us, urging us to look at Christ, the Good Shepherd, who was betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. He puts in brackets there Matthew 26, verse 15, Matthew 27, 3 and 9. Only 40 years after his rejection by the civil and religious leaders of his time, the cruel events of A.D. 70 occurred, the land became despoiled, and the metaphorical timbers fell. There is a last dramatic act in this prophetic performance narrated for us in verse 14. Then I broke my second staff, Union, annulling the brotherhood between Judah and Israel. Having broken his staff favor, there's no point in keeping the staff union around either because union is dependent upon the gracious leadership of the good shepherd. Brian Gregory says here, The hope of reunification promised by Ezekiel was conditioned upon the installation of the coming Davidic king. If the people were going to reject the Davidic shepherd in whom all the hopes of unity rested, then they were essentially foreclosing the possibility that there might be a reunification of all the tribes too. They would essentially be turning their backs on the glorious promise of reunification pictured in Ezekiel 37, quote. So I think we do have to look at the first coming of Jesus and his subsequent rejection by the nation of Israel as a whole as, in some sense, a giant missed opportunity. That isn't to say that God was surprised by it or that it wasn't accounted for in his sovereign plan. But it is to say that having rejected Christ, the people of Israel forfeited, at least temporarily, many of the great blessings they had been longing for and reaching for throughout their history. Romans 11 gives us great hope that they may opt back into the stream of promise at some point in the future. That's a discussion for another day. But here, certainly, and I would argue undeniably, we are seeing opportunity and blessing lost. And the reality of that began to come to fruition in the years immediately following that fateful decision. T.W. Chambers, for example, says here, the breaking up of the nation into parties bitterly hostile to each other was one of the most marked peculiarities of the later Jewish history and greatly accelerated the ruin of the popular cause in the Roman war, closed quote. When they rejected the Good Shepherd, they immediately began to spiral down into chaos, death, disunity, and ruin. That is what is being prophesied here in Zechariah, and that is what history tells us indeed happened. In verses 15 to 16, we have the second prophetic sign act. This one is described, but the acting out part is not narrated, although I think we're meant to assume that Zechariah was once again obedient to this unusual charge. Verse 15. Then the Lord said to me, take once more the equipment of a foolish shepherd. For behold, I am raising up in the land a shepherd who does not care for those being destroyed, or seek the young, or heal the maimed, or nourish the healthy, but devours the flesh of the fat ones, tearing off even their hooves. So in contrast to the good shepherd that the people reject, Zechariah now prophesies a bad shepherd, a foolish or worthless shepherd. Now, scholars, again, debate how literally we're supposed to understand this. Are we looking for one particularly bad shepherd? Or is this just saying that in general, having rejected the good, all they're going to get now is the bad? That's what I personally believe, but I am, of course, intrigued by all the various speculations. Some scholars see this as referring to Titus, the people rejected Jesus who wanted to heal them, feed them, and bless them, so they get Titus who besieged them, starved them, and destroyed them. That could be it. Others say that this ultimately refers to the Antichrist. Having rejected Jesus, the people will now find themselves enslaved by the ultimate villain in the Bible, the Antichrist. Some dispensational authors take that view. But I think that introduces more interpretive problems than it solves. I think the simplest and most likely answer is that the drama is saying, quite straightforwardly, that when you reject the Good Shepherd, you will get the bad shepherd again and again and again. Titus was certainly one of those. The Antichrist is certainly to be another. But in between, there will be many. A pattern is established, a principle that will haunt and follow the people who have rejected their Messiah. That's how I take it. But again, specifics remain subject to debate and further inquiry. The chapter ends with a short poem in verse 17. Woe to my worthless shepherd, who deserts the flock. May the sword strike his arm and his right eye. Let his arm be wholly withered, his right eye utterly blinded. That's a fairly dramatic closing scene. Whether Zechariah sung that or had someone else sing it, we don't know. But it definitely adds to the sense of foreboding. A bad shepherd is coming. He is worthless, ruthless. How awful to be under him, but also How awful to be him, for he is under the very curse of God. And that actually introduces a note of hope. The worthless shepherd doesn't get away with anything. God is watching, and he will hold him to final account. So that's the second oracle, or eschatological writing, and there can be absolutely no doubt that Jesus very intentionally steps into this imagery as a way of framing and positioning his own ministry and calling In John 10, 8-11, he says, All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he'll be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd, close quote. Well, it doesn't get any clearer than that. Jesus came as the good shepherd. He made an appeal to his people. He came to bring them life and life abundant. But he knew that he would be rejected. He predicted it on multiple occasions. He knew how that chapter of the story would end, at least in part because he had read about it in the book of Zechariah. That's why he wept over the city of Jerusalem in Luke 19. He knew what could have been. And he knew what would now be because of the decision made by the people. The second oracle tells a very sad story. It predicts that the people of Israel will reject the good shepherd and become subject to international savagery and incompetent and abusive leadership as a result. The good news though, is that this is not the end of the story. There are two more oracles to come and in those oracles we discover that it is actually through his rejection and death that the good shepherd ultimately saves and restores his people. And many other peoples beside. What they meant for evil, the Lord, in the mystery of his providence, used for good. Thanks be to God. And thank you for listening to another episode of Into the Word. If you've appreciated the Into the Word ministry, I'd like to personally invite you to pay it forward by supporting one of our preferred mission partners. For the remainder of this year, we are highlighting the church planting ministry Mile One in St. John's, Newfoundland. Newfoundland is classified as an unreached population, with less than 2% of people identifying as evangelicals. Mile One Ministries is committed to helping healthy churches plant other Bible-believing, gospel-preaching churches. Here at End of the Word, I only promote ministries that I have first-hand, on-the-ground experience with. Mile One is bearing fruit and is being led and stewarded by people that I know and trust. If you'd like to make a contribution to this important ministry, you can do that by visiting the Into the Word website at intotheword.ca. There are giving options there under the Give tab for both Canadian and American listeners. International listeners are welcome to give as well, though their gifts may not qualify for charitable receipts in their nation.